recognize the, uh, the book that I've been leaning into pretty heavily for this material is, is called uh, The Ninefold Path of Jesus by Mark Scandrett. And we've been looking at the Beatitudes and uh, looking at the ideas of how that can begin just considering what some of those themes look like. Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, it means that we embrace the way of trust. It means that we embrace the way of lament. And this week, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, verses 5. The title of the message this morning is The Way of Lament. Um, oh, that was last week. See there? I looked down at my mess. I have two things on my notes. I need to fix that. The way of humility is... <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. The way of humility, the way of lament was last week. All right. Um, our youngest son, uh, you know, he was a laid-back guy from the time that uh, Denise has been doing some writing. Uh, and she, the kids gave her a thing called Storyworth where she's writing stories of her life and uh, sharing that. And so she was writing about the birth of our, you know, what each of the young kids were like as they were young. And we were talking about, you know, our youngest son, mild-mannered guy, uh, but one lanky dude. You know, the, the, the older he got up to even, you know, in his, in his boyhood and then into his tweens, the, the kid was just one thin, lanky guy. And uh, unfortunately, that made him a particular target for one of his older brothers, not Logan. I'm just going to name that, right? Okay, so don't pick on him about this. Uh, no, he's, he's, tall, he's tall, but it was his lanky younger brother that became the target of another brother who will remain nameless. But, you, you know, if you know our family, you know that the numbers probably, you know, you can kind of, kind of might be able to figure that out. But uh, while his uh, older brother was in high school and college, he would, uh, he would come and, and Denise used to say that he had to take out his, his stuff. You know, he would, he would have... Uh, He'd have all this energy that he'd take out on him, and he'd try, to, he'd try out his latest pretend chokehold on his younger brother. Um, now, I want to say that today, when we'll have a family gathering, and we will next month, actually, I think ours will be on January 1st, by the way, uh, when we'll have all of our kids together, I can say with great confidence that, won't even, that brother won't even attempt that on Donovan today. Those of you who know Donovan today know that, um, that he's 6'4", 220 pounds of jiu-jitsu-trained muscle. Um, and, and, and interestingly, through college, as Donovan was training, this one particular one of his brothers used to try to, you know, wrestle him down. And I'd, I'd beg and plead, guys, this is tile floor. Somebody's going to get hurt. Your mother's watching. You know, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But uh, I want to say, I think one of the last couple of times where that, uh, where that was tried, it was, uh, it, 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 I noticed a distinct decision to cease from this activity. And so, uh, in fact, if I could derail, this isn't in my notes. <laughs> I believe, now Logan leads a, a, he leads a house fellowship, and out of that group, he's got a, a guys group that meets a couple of times. And uh, I, I, I noticed Logan one day, I said, Logan, what's that bruise? And I noticed another bruise on one of his other brothers, and he said, Dad, stop. So then I poked some more. I said, what's this about? Well, we had a guy's group meeting, and, and Donovan took everybody. He destroyed them. 
And so uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, it was that kind of a guy group meeting. So my point is that when he walks into the room, um, interestingly at this point in his life, uh, almost everybody notices. Now, sometimes he says to me, you know, yes, Dad, it does get old to hear, you know, how's the weather up there. That's sort of an old joke, but people still use it. But here's my point, is that size and stature communicate something. And, and if we're honest about it, it carries an inherent power. Uh, so when he walks into the room, now, he has an older brother. This isn't the one that used to try to their chokeholds on him. But he has an older brother who, uh, he w- by his own confession, would say that he uh, has some height challenges. Um, he didn't inherit the Dutch tall gene. And in fact, he has turned to me at more than one time in the last year or two and said, Dad, what is that all about? How come I didn't get that? I said, well, sorry, son, you know. Um, comparing and competing, it just comes naturally. You put a set of kids in the room. Oh, wait, put a set of adults in the room. And what happens? Well, you figure out who's the tallest, the shortest, the most significant, the most powerful. Where do they stack up? Oh, wait, and more importantly, where do I stack up in comparison? 30 years ago, plus, actually, closer to 40, um, I, I, my, my boss asked me if I would fill in for him at a downtown pastor's luncheon. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm working with a church downtown, but the the pastor's luncheon of of these pastors are what I would call more formal. And so I remember when I walked into the room with somewhere around a half a dozen pastors, uh, it was one of the most graphic moments of getting sized up that I've ever experienced. Uh, I, I, you know, told my boss, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll go. You know, what time is it? What day? Yeah, okay. You know, he was off on holiday somewhere, so I went. And, you know, here comes in this 20-something fully bearded, uh, permed mullet, khaki pants, button-up shirt, okay? You know, I thought, hey, I look pretty, you know, I'm, you know, I look good enough, right? What could possibly go sideways? Hi, I'm Ben. The first man turned with coffee in his hand and said, Hi, I'm Dr. I remember remember the rest of his name. This is Dr. So-and-so. And And within minutes, now you need to know this. When you get into a group of pastors, um, I know this happens in other business settings, but but here's, here's a dirty little secret that happens among pastors. They, they begin to share and they begin to talk. And one of the things that they begin to do is they begin to fish around to find out your education and how big's the place that you're leading. They're sizing you up. And I'm sitting in this, seat, uh, in this place, and I, I, we actually we hadn't even sat down yet. And so already I was being asked, where did I go to seminary? And when I revealed that I hadn't actually been to seminary and that I was working with a non-quote liturgical church, uh, 
they'd already had it figured out. I had already realized they'd already sized me up. And then as we sat down before lunch was going to be served to us, because in my setting, I would have been like, let's go get lunch or have somebody, you know, we'll, we'll bring it, we'll go get something through the drive-thru and have a seat together. It was being served. And as lunch is being served, uh, they begin to ask the opening question of, where did you do your international study this year? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was that moment that I realized I was really out of my league. Now, interestingly, just a few years before that, I had this really odd experience. And I, I, I can remember vividly walking into this adobe hut in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I am, you know, just shy of six foot tall, and the plastic on the ceiling is brushing the top of my coiffed hair. I had hair then. And, it's, and, and they were looking at, in wonder at me. Not just because of my height, but because they, had, they were expecting me to bring something. In just, just a short time after that, I was in this, this tin-roofed building in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and every eye was gazed upon me. I was younger then, less trained, and yet they gazed upon me as if I was the dude that had come as a guest to speak. And see, the truth is, I was just a six-foot white man from America. See, that thing, competing and comparing, measuring up, assessing. Who are we? Who are they? Who am I? You know, whether we use this measuring stick or this kind of a measuring stick, we're assigning value and worth to others and to ourselves based on what we discover. I had a sister that said to me at one point, I don't know what to say to your wife. I said, what are you talking about? Well, she's mo so much more educated than I am. I said, honey, she's a woman. Talk. You're mothers. There's lots of things to talk about. So we, we get into these situations where we talk about who's the most powerful. Am I less than? Am I greater than? And that form of math, beloved, is common to man from the time we're little toddlers. And watch this. This is what's important about it. It reveals more about our weak understanding of our own worth and our weak understanding of the worth of others. And let me also mention that it can be utterly exhausting. Comparing, competing, doing our best to figure out where we are, and then, oh, God forbid that I should walk into a room and someone has more than I do, so what happens? You know, they've done studies where, where that it's actually the nerve centers of the brain are individuals find pleasure in seeing those who've succeeded experience failure because it makes them feel better. Beloved, this, this form of math, this form of relating toward one another, it never ends well. Some who've gotten to the place where they just concluded, I will always be less than. 
I, I think I've shared this before, but I need to say it regular and often. It's taken me a long time to realize that I have a huge advantage walking into any room as a man who's got skin that's of a lighter hue, who's about six foot tall. I, I've never been pulled over because of the color of my skin. I've never had people look suspiciously at me when I walked into a, a room or to a grocery store. I haven't had somebody assume my job based on the color of my skin. I, I've had people assume my job because of my age. Now, I, here, I, I could go down, we could spend the rest of the day talking about the real pain that's come as a result of this instinct to compare and to compete interpersonally. But even in the larger context, guys, let's be honest about this, um, it, it, how this has caused great harm into cultures, how it's informed policies and politics and wreaked havoc and devastation. Okay, we, we in the West can look at World War II and we can see all of the dynamics that were occurring there and the things that go, we're like, how in the world did that get sideways? And we're, some of us are maybe a little bit less informed about the policies and the politics that have literally formed and shaped uh, and, and caused generations of poverty in Central America as a direct result of American policy. Country like El Salvador is bearing the fruit of that. So, like I said, we can talk all morning about that. That's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about is how Jesus invites us to live a way that's actually truly human. Matthew 5, verse 5 Blessed are the meek, the gentle. They will inherit the earth. Jesus proclaims a narrative that's completely opposite to their instinctive competition and comparison. Something completely, you know, from what they would have assumed, the meek inherit the earth. Now, let's be clear. Meekness and gentleness doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control. It's, it's really experienced as humility, true humility. Now, I'm going to give some definition to that. I want to try to get through that quickly. Uh, I, I recognize our uh, not allowed. I'll just, I'm just going to jump right on in here. Uh, if you have uh, your Bible, I want to encourage you to take a peek at, with me at John 13 because there is no more graphic passage about humility in the New Testament, I believe, then John 13, well, you could probably tie in Philippians chapter uh, 2, as Paul describes uh, the life of Jesus who, in equality with God, didn't grasp that equality was something to be laid hold of. But in John 13, uh, we have Jesus, who's at the feast of the Passover, and knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, Luke gives us this account, Luke 22, verse 24, that at this very same moment, Luke 22, 24, there was a dispute among the disciples as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. 
they're sizing each other up at the Passover, at the Last Supper. John goes on to say this. During the supper, the devil, uh, having already entered into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus already knows this. Knowing, now I want you to take notice especially of verse 3, okay? This, this verse right here should do more to inform us about humility than any other verse. Here it is, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, so, and that he had come forth from God and was going to God. So catch this. Jesus knows where he's from. He knows what's in his hands. He knows where he's going. Everybody follow me, right? Those three things. Critical. What does Jesus do with that? And remember, this is we're having a dispute. Who's going to be the greatest? He got up from supper, laid aside his garment, taking up a towel, girded himself. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples. Jesus knows where he came from. He knows what's in his hands. He knows where he's going. And while his friends are measuring one another up, he doesn't come and say, hey, guys, can I set the record straight? He uses his strength to serve. If you want a definition of humility, there it is. Using our strength to serve. Jesus' confidence was in the Father's love toward him, and he embraces a posture of humility. He washes the disciples' feet, using strength to serve the worth of others. See, knowing his worth, he was able to serve the worth of others. Blessed are the gentle and the meek. The good news that Jesus proclaims in this beatitude is actually that there's another way to live that moves us from comparison and competition to humbling and honoring inherent worth. In the end, it won't be the proud strivers who will inherit the earth, but those who embrace the reality of their worth and the worth of others who use their strength to serve. Blessed are the humble. It was about 15 plus years ago I was meditating through the Psalms, meditating on Psalm 18. And there's several verses in the words in that in that opening part of Psalm 18 that many of us would be familiar with. The Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. In him I take refuge. And honestly, I love those words because it it portrays those images for us of strength, protection recognizing my own weakness. And so, you know, I, this is sort of the thought process for me. I remember my dad talking about how we go from strength to strength. So the focus was always on this idea of strength. And then I got to verse 35, and, and I'm meditating on this chapter, and so I stopped and I'm rehearsing it, and I'm saying it over and over to myself. And, I, and it wrecked me because, watch this, verse 35 You've also given me a shield for your salvation, and your right hand, your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. 
and I began to just meditate on this. I'm like, wait a minute. The psalmist is recognizing that it's not, it's not just that God is great and powerful, but it's, it's his gentleness that made greatness. And Jesus reveals it in his life, doesn't he? Meekness, gentleness. Blessed are the gentle. And then he demonstrates it in John 13. And he steps into an argument about greatness and in meekness washes their feet. It's called the way of humility that doesn't need to step on a stage of competition or comparison, but is busy using its strength for the sake of others. The way of humility. Now, I want to say this. There have been times that I have pretended humility. You know that thing where we kind of feign humility, that sort of passive, submissive posture. I have a friend, and she said, you know, in, in my church tradition, we're proud of our humility. We try to make sure everybody notice how humble that we are. But, oh, wait, wait, that's comparing again, isn't it? Let me show you how humble I can be so everybody will know. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Jesus' humility now, I, I'm, I'm going to go lean into John 13. I want you to, I'm going to try to cover this quickly, but I want you to see this clearly. Jesus' humility begins not in comparing or competing, but in a settled awareness. Watch this. He knew his inherent worth to the Father. He knew where he had come from, where he's going, what had been put into his hands. So don't miss this. Jesus reveals that the way of meekness and the way of humility begins by recognizing our inherent worth and value. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 139. I'm not going to turn to those verses because I don't have time, but he says this, I praise you because I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Your works are incredible. I know that full well. And then he goes on and says in verse 17 and 18, your thoughts, O God, they're multiple and they're towards me. So the meditation target of heaven, of God himself, is us? What? To which I ask the question, do you know who you are? You're made in the image of the invisible God. Angels fell. He did nothing. But when you and I fell, he moved heaven and earth. You were worth, you remember the anthem of heaven that's being proclaimed even to this day in Revelation 5. You purchase men for God. That's you and that's me. Jesus decided that his blood was worth you. So here's the interment of what that means. The, the opposite of what that means is this, that you're worth what he paid. He didn't pay his blood for demons that fell. He gave his blood for his sons and daughters to be restored and redeemed to himself. Do you know who you are? In ancient cultures, especially in the East, there is a posture that transcends language of honor. Whether it's bowing. Jesus, understanding where he had come from, the Father, Mark Scandrett suggests that, that part of what we need to do is, is, is recognize there's this thing going on inside of me. So literally, maybe our posture should be 
to put our hand on our heart and to bow in reverence. What am I bowing to? Number one is the source of life. I know where I've come from. I belong to God. The source of life is Him. I praise you for the mystery of my creation. I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. I want to bow to that reality first and foremost. I I literally will, will cause my body to posture, to bend in reverence to that. The path of humility begins by recognizing the source of our life and our inherent worth that he declared. I'm a divine image bearer created with dignity and worth. Jesus knew where he'd come from. He didn't have to get in the mix of that mess. Do you know where you've come from? He also knew where he was going. And can I just invite your thought process into this for a moment? In the community of the Godhead, this isn't just a theological principle, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. I can give you some Bible verses. See, he knows where he's going, so his destiny is not in question. He, he rests securely in the Father's love. So he's not, I don't need to prove anything. I know where I'm going. So he's bowing to the source of life, where he's going. And, and, and here's what I want you to see in that In that community of the Godhead, the gentleness that the psalmist describes is present in the Godhead. So watch this. That means there's an interdependence in the Godhead that reveals something absolutely incredible. Jesus, on the night before he's crucified, says, Father, ah, can you let this pass, you know, this this cup pass, but not my will, your will. He's, He's bent himself to the Father, but watch this. Paul says this about the Father. God placed everything under his feet. Why? Because he took on the form of man, became obedient to death, even death upon the cross. Wait a minute. There's this interdependence that's going on among the Godhead? Yes. Jesus isn't worried about his place. He's recognizing the source of his life, the value of his life, and that, beloved, is the beginning place of the way of humility. Lord, my life is from you, and it's secure in you. So watch. Then humility can recognize the worth of others. You guys are arguing. Can I just do something for you that nobody else seems to want to do? I'll use my strength to serve. Now, how do we recognize the worth of others? Uh, washing feet, maybe. Uh, my son Logan challenged me on this. He said, you know, even at times, Dad, there's sometimes people can, can use washing feet as a way to power up. Now, let me give you cl- cl- a classic example. My wife and I are at a wedding, and the husband, after giving vows, washes his wife's feet but refuses his wife to wash his feet. You want to know why? Let me give you, here's the quick reason why. Because for him, his identity was tied up in the fact that he was the helper. And therefore, that persona comes out like this. His worth is tied up in the idea, I need you to need me. Recognizing the worth of others 
means that we come to use our strength to serve them. Uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I read this this last week. He said, we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Here's what this means. It means that we honor the dignity and worth of others, every individual put in our life. You know, one person who has helped me a lot in this has been my own wife as I've watched her honor the dignity of others. Whether we're walking into a store and she turns to the person who's sweeping the floor and says, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. See, it, it means that I see those that are that I value them. What about the others that I feel like are fighting against me? the political party, the other people. They seem to be against me. Even them? Yes. Judas was in the room. So, remember what I talked about with this husband-wife scenario? Can I just say this? Part of honoring the dignity of others is to allow them to give to us. So Jesus says this, as a matter of practice, so when, when we're honoring the dignity of other people, that means we give and receive, okay? But Jesus said, as a matter of practice, Luke 14.10, take the lowest seat. The way of humility. Honoring the source of life and my own dignity and worth, and honoring it in others. Jesus proclaims in this beatitude a way to live that moves us from comparing and competing to humbly honoring inherent worth. It will not be in the end proud strivers who inherit the earth, but those who embrace the reality of their worth and the worth of others who use their strength to serve. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember these postures? The open hands. The way of trust. Blessed are those who mourn. Put our hands on our head to recognize the place of lament, that the, even in the place of lament can be a place of birthing of life. Blessed are the meek and the gentle as I bow to my own worth, the source of life, and to the inherent worth of others. I want to invite us to close this morning with a prayer that is from William Barclay, a theologian. And I want to invite you, if you would, let's stand together. If you're on the call and you have something to take communion, we're going to take communion here in just a few moments. But I want to invite you to just join with me in this prayer for humility. Let's pray this together. O oh, Father, give us the humility which realizes its ignorance, admits its mistakes, recognizes its need, welcomes advice, accepts rebuke. Help us always to praise rather than to criticize, to sympathize rather than to condemn, to encourage rather than to discourage, to build rather than to destroy, and to think of other people at their best rather than at their worst. This we ask for your name's sake. Amen and amen.